You're listening to For the Record, a Registrar podcast. I'm Doug McKenna, and this is a commentary on the state of affairs in the United States. Yeah, not today, Zerg. Maybe by the end of this episode, I'll be back in the mood for a little For the Record bop. But right now, we'll just put that aside. Also, while this podcast is sponsored by Acro, the views and beliefs expressed herein are my own and may not be reflective of Acro as an organization. This isn't normally what you would consider a news cycle-driven podcast, and by the time you're listening to this, there might even be more incredible events that have transpired since recording this. But I wanted to make sure that For the Record was on the record, condemning the deadly violence perpetuated by a group of seditious insurrectionists at the United States Capitol building on Wednesday, January 6th, 2021. Mike Riley, the ACRO executive director, wrote, We support the right to assemble and protest. However, this was not a protest, and we condemn the violent and brazen acts that endangered lives as well as our democratic values and procedures. There's a lot to be upset about with the rushing of the Capitol. This won't be an exhaustive list, but some lowlights, if you will, about why what happened was so disturbing. First, six people died, four rioters and two Capitol Police officers, so far. I mourn the loss of life caused by the insurrectionists, and even of the insurrectionists. Would all six of the people who died still be alive if they hadn't stormed the Capitol? Very likely, yes. Would the dozens of Capitol Police who were injured in the melee not have suffered those injuries if the rioters hadn't stormed the Capitol? Also very likely, yes. We're going to come back to the police response momentarily, But I at least want to start with this sense of humanity, that those things that are most important to us still matter. Second, each of our institutions relies on the federal government in some way, shape, or form, be it for grants, funding, federal financial aid for our students. Those are the obvious ways. But more than that, we rely on the stability that the United States government has provided in order for the higher education enterprise to thrive in the ways that it has in this country. So an attack on the government affects that stability and in turn affects each of our abilities to do our jobs safely and effectively. But even before the COVID-19 pandemic, we were experiencing an upheaval in the way the children of immigrants and or international students were treated, largely driven by hateful and prejudicial policies about who is allowed to come to the United States, who's allowed to remain in the United States, and who is allowed to learn in the United States. And lest we forget, we are a nation of immigrants occupying stolen land. Third, if you're like me, last Wednesday afternoon you sat dumbstruck watching a group of almost entirely white, angry rioters, some of whom were armed, blow past the small cordon of a police presence on their way into the Capitol, incited to violent action by the President of the United States and his immediate family members and supporters. 
after a year of hearing the word unprecedented to the point of it being almost meaningless, this truly has no precedent in United States history. I lean a little to the reactionary side. And so when I'm feeling like the sky is falling, I like to check in with someone to get a bit of balance and perspective. And that someone is my dad. Dad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for agreeing to chat about some of the historical relevance of the events of Wednesday, January 6th, the storming of the Capitol. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other historically bad things that have happened in the United States and get a sense of where this particular event sits on that kind of a spectrum. Okay. Uh, let me say a couple of things about either events or processes where we know presidents have been directly involved. I think of my youth. I'm a plebe at West Point. It's 1964. And Lyndon Johnson is making all kinds of protestations about what we are not going to do in Vietnam. All the while, he is making decisions that deepen and deepen and deepen our commitment to Vietnam. Now, that wasn't nearly as egregious as what we're talking about with the attack on the Capitol. It happened mostly behind closed doors, but those decisions had far-reaching consequences. Right. Much more much more visible, much more public was the entire Watergate scandal, uh, which uh, eventually, after years of investigation and committee hearings and all kinds of stuff, uh, led to Richard Nixon's resignation as a president. He's certainly in, in my lifetime is the only president who has ever actually been forced out of office uh, by uh, being forced to resign. So those are now 1968. America was in many ways coming apart. In 1968, there were approximately 100 cities that were burning in the United States with all of the violence associated with civil rights and violence against those who were uh, trying to press for civil rights and racial equality. Um, at one time, there were 82nd Airborne Troopers in the basement of the White House uh, because there was such fear about the violence that could be wrought in the nation's capital. But I, I fast forward to the events of the other day. I think for me, what is in stark contrast to the things that I have just described is the direct involvement of the president himself trying to incite a riot and to encourage violence. Um, and it's just, it's appalling. And in my lifetime, I, I have never seen anything like that. Yeah. Unprecedented, I think, is a word that applies there. I would agree. So, Dad, we as a nation continue as a nation in spite of the things that you talked about just a second ago. And I hope that we will continue as a nation following the events of last Wednesday. 
what do we need to be focused on as a country right now? There are a lot of calls for healing and unity, largely by the people who supported, even uh, tangentially, the president in his calls for a rejection of the election results. And so in your opinion, what do we need to be doing in order to secure the future of America? I, I think turn down the noise a bit. There, are, You hear a lot of uh, rather strident, uh, I'll use the word proclamations, and just people claiming things or people arguing for things. I think reliance on the rule of law, uh, we hear that term, we've heard that term a great deal recently, but I mean to make that a reality because systemically one of the things that Donald Trump has done is subvert the rule of law in the United States and almost make it one man rule. You either do what I say or I'll fire you or it doesn't matter, I'll go ahead and do what I want to do anyway. So I think, yes, we need to heal, but institutionally, there's a great deal of work to be done to repair the damage that this president has done systemically and systematically over the last four years. It sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, it will be a tremendous amount of work. And my guess is that it's not going to be accomplished within a Joe Biden presidency. It may take a decade to get back to where we might have been um, before Donald Trump became president. And in, in some ways, we may never get back, uh, which is really frightening. Um, yeah. Because he is not going away. I would love to see Pence invoke the 25th Amendment and remove him from office. Because frankly, I still think he's got enough acolytes in the Senate that even if a um, bill of impeachment is passed in the House, that he won't be convicted in the Senate and it won't throw him out of office. Yeah. So if that's the case, I mean, the, the, the most significant thing for me out of the 25th Amendment is he could never hold public office again. Doesn't mean he can't be a kingmaker within the Republican Party, but he can't be the king himself. Um, yeah. So I, I think there's a great deal of personal and institutional work that's going to have to be done in order to get us back to where we may have been before uh, he took the oath of office. Yeah. You sound terrible, by the way. Yeah, I, I, to... I, don't, I don't feel well, and I'm very, please forgive me for the sound of my voice. Usually I speak in mellifluous tones. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the, the smooth, buttery um, sounds. <laughs> but not, well, it is not, good, it is good talking to you. Yeah. Thank you. And I appreciate you taking some time to chat, especially not feeling well. It's reassuring to hear from an historical perspective, not that we've been here before because we haven't been exactly here, um, but that there have been other challenges and other situations in American history where we, the people, have had to rise up in a way to meet the challenge of the needs for the continued well-being of our institutions and our nation. Yeah, so. amen to that.
So thanks, Dad. Okay, buddy. <laughs> I love you. I love you too. Love to mom. Thanks, Paul. God bless. Watching the scenes unfold in real time, texting friends and family and refreshing various news sites, I recalled the horror, the anger, and the outrage that I felt this past summer watching Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. be aggressively cleared of peaceful Black Lives Matters protesters by a police force decked out in full riot gear with tear gas, flashbang grenades, rubber bullets, and zero interest in peaceful dialogue or First Amendment rights. Trying to reconcile the two images in my brain highlighted in stark relief the reality of the vicious double standard in the application of force by this country's police. It is inconceivable that the police surrounding the Capitol on Wednesday, January 6th, would have responded the way that they did if the rioters had been black. Now, importantly, as was noted on Twitter by Devante Harris, quote, We're not asking you to shoot them like you shoot us. We're asking you to not shoot us like you don't shoot them. End quote. Asking not to be killed by the police and demanding accountability for officers who use deadly force are both reasonable requests. And that is how you do understatement. Wanting to execute the Vice President of the United States, literally chanting that desire as you approach the seat of government in our nation's capital, is not reasonable under any circumstances. It feels overwhelming. Thinking about what to do or how to do it in order to right the wrongs that we're seeing right now in America. But it's critical that we commit to doing something. The idea of evil triumphing because people of goodwill sat on their hands goes back a long way. Marcus Aurelius wrote in his meditations, quote, and you can also commit injustice by doing nothing, end quote. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, said, quote, To sin by silence when they should protest makes cowards of men, end quote. Martin Luther King Jr. said, quote, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, end quote. The history of the United States is riddled with failures of justice that have, so far, left those self-evident truths only as unrealized ideals. But I still believe that we have the power within us to manifest them, to make the United States a just, fair, equitable, inclusive society. But that isn't going to happen just by talking about it. Every day, we have to work for it if we believe in it. That is, in fact, the most meaningful work we can do. The late John Lewis said of Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote about the arc of history being long but bending toward justice, that one, he said, it only bends that way because we put our shoulders against it and push it 
in that direction. That this isn't work for a weekend or a year, but that this is the work of a lifetime. Another quote I love is, when is the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago or today. It'd be nice if we'd all been working for justice for the past 20 years or more, and that is not to discount those who have been. If we'd planted that tree 20 years ago, we'd have a nice spot with some shade to sit under and have a picnic. But we can't look 20 years into the future and bemoan the fact that there are no trees while we sit idly by not planting trees. As registrars, administrators, and educators, we play important roles. First, we are part of our larger communities, both at our institutions and where we live. If you are a person of privilege, you need to first recognize what that means, and second, to use that privilege to lift up others from marginalized communities, be they racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, gender, sexual orientation, religious, or cultural. In your office, you can do this with professional development opportunities, special projects, or simply by acknowledging the work that your staff is doing and thanking them meaningfully. Second, look at your office. Review the policies and practices of your institution. Be critical about the language you use when you communicate with students. Is it inclusive? What assumptions are you making with the information you're sharing or the requests that you're making? Look at your website and your forms. Be open to suggestions. Be open to making changes. Third, recognize that this past year has been extraordinarily stressful on people, yourself included. Whenever possible, extend grace and understanding. Higher education is critical and we need the fruits of education in the United States now more than ever. We need our institutions to prepare our students not just for grad school or for a job, but to be active, informed, responsible citizens with critical thinking and reasoning skills. None of this will be necessarily easy. Be brave, be courageous, be persistent. We must continue to work for justice with decency and kindness, to strive for understanding, for tolerance and forgiveness, but also for accountability. Love will prevail so long as we do not despair. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record. Okay, I'll play the song. <laughs>